You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. There is no longer any serious doubt that daily habits and actions profoundly affect our quality of life. Uh, this concept is supported by thousands of research studies. In fact, I think many of them are published every week. And in fact, if you look at some, most of the guidelines for chronic disease, they also support this idea of uh, using lifestyle and habits to prevent and even treat metabolic diseases such as diabetes, such as cardiovascular disease, even things like cancer. Uh, it's a big issue. If you look at the three biggest quality of life diseases in Canada, you're talking about cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, right? The study of how habits and actions affect both prevention and treatment of disease has coalesced around something called lifestyle medicine, which is what we'll be talking about today. And who we're talking to is Dr. Stephen Sharp. He's a fellow family physician, although he's all the way on the West Coast in Vancouver. He's also medical director of Aroga Lifestyle Medicine, which is the multi-specialty collaborative lifestyle medicine organization created to inspire and empower patients to prevent, treat, and reverse many illnesses. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sharp. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you uh, very much, Dimitri, for having me. It's it's a pleasure. I'm I'm actually I'm really thrilled to be here. To be quite honest with you, so I know you're a busy man. Thank you for your time as well. And so I've tried to define lifestyle medicine, but what is lifestyle medicine to you? What is what is your definition of it? Yeah, well, I think you you sort of kind of hit the nail on the head in your introduction there. But essentially, it's it's a practice of medicine utilizing an evidence-based approach that emphasizes prevention, you know, treatment, and and really potentially reversal of many of our chronic diseases. Um, and as you're well aware, I think you know the 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 rates of obesity um, and diabetes in in North America alone are are through the roof. You know, we've got I think. 20 to 30, 25 to 30 percent of Americans, if you look at American data, are obese. Mm -hmm. and I think over half one in two Americans, and I would certainly include, you know, Canada in this in these numbers, um, right. some kind of chronic illness that they are um they are dealing with. And and the large component of those are are lifestyle based. Um, we can even look at things like arthritis and say, well, although lifestyle, we may not be able to attribute lifestyle to the sort of the, the cause of arthritis in all cases, osteoarthritis, we certainly see um, exacerbations of uh, the, you know, the, pheno, uh, the genotype um, with, you know, lifestyle related, uh, you know, complications. So obesity, certainly diabetes can contribute to mobility issues without question. Um, so it's a huge, it's a huge issue. And, and wow, it, it seems to me, see, it seems obvious. It seems intuitive when you look at these things as well, of if all of these conditions are largely, uh, or have some, some component of lifestyle um, uh, cause, um, certainly, can we can we approach uh, treatment better uh, from a lifestyle's perspective and get a real handle on these conditions? So, so that's what we're trying to do. How did you get involved? How did you get involved in in lifestyle medicine as oh. a family doctor? Yeah, that's a that's a cool story. I mean, I, I think 
you know, when I reflect back, it probably all started about so maybe eight to 10 years ago. And I, I suppose that like a lot of us, you know, you're in the trenches and you're seeing these chronic conditions that that you know are are related to poor lifestyle choices and people, let's say, struggling with lifestyle behaviors. Um, and I, I remember, I, I think it was, it was diabetes is the sort of the poster child, as we know, because it has so many terrible complications. And, and the large majority of uh, type 2 diabetes certainly um, can be connected with lifestyle behaviors. Even if you have the genotype, the phenotype, you know, doesn't manifest in everybody. Um, and we see reversal. We can see reversal um, sometimes very, very quickly. So looking at that, and I remember going to these conferences, and, and there was one in Vancouver that would run every year called and, and the title is, is, you know, is telling. The title was Live Well with Diabetes. So, you know, live and try to reverse diabetes or live and try to eliminate diabetes. It was Live Well with Diabetes. And so, you know, as you might imagine, the, uh, the emphasis was on medical therapy. And I remember getting up at one point, and at this point, I had started to become more curious about lifestyle and, 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 and nutrition specifically, um, not only for my patients, but for my own health. And, and I remember asking a question about lifestyle. And I remember the, the diabetologist uh, being quite dismissive of, you know, the potential for nutritional change to make any kind of relevant difference in his practice. It's like, well, you know, we looked at this study and this study and, you know, the outcomes were, you know, people don't adhere to the diet. So what's the point? On to the insulin talk, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I sat down and, and I thought, wow, OK, I didn't expect that, honestly, because my question was it was an inquiry more of a rather than a, a statement uh, saying, hey, did you know that, you know, if you do this, you can improve this. Uh, so. I, I suppose that started things off and I started to dig in and I, I remember attending a conference. It was the International Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference. And it was, uh, I think, in San Diego. And I just, I remember being sort of gobsmacked with, you know, some of the, some of the information that was presented there and some of the data. And I thought, wow, really? You know, you can you can actually reverse this. Um, you know, remember, I don't I don't remember the trial, but I think it was a small uh, interventional trial. And uh, you looking at uh, patients that were insulin dependent, type two diabetics, and they they did sort of a ward type uh, trial where they uh, they controlled the patient's diets for a period of short short period of time. Um, I think it was several weeks, if I'm not mistaken, and they they kept you know one on the usual diet and one on went to a fully plant based whole food diet, and I think some crazy number like half of them were off their insulin within within weeks of of the switch. So, I mean, when you see things like that, that's the possibility. You know, are those things sustainable? That's the next question. But but it almost you think well okay. If you can do this metabolically, um, we should be trying to do this, you know, 
Um, and, and of course, you know, how do we do that in a sustainable way that's going to carry the patient over, over the course of years? Well, that's another issue, but there it is, right? If we do this, wow, off insulin. And, and at Aroga, I would say we've seen patients who really take the bull by the horns, they drop their insulin needs like almost overnight, like it's crazy. Uh, so those things can happen. And, and then we're dealing with hypoglycemia. It's like, okay, Joe, you have, <laughs> to, you have to pull the insulin back. Oh my gosh. You know, um, don't forget what we said in the, in the last visit. So anyhow, I, that got me kind of enthused. And, and, and then, uh, you know, I started to attend the American college of lifestyle medicine conferences. And uh, I think I met, one or two of the of the founders of Aroga at a conference in again probably in San Diego, um, you know probably about five years ago, and uh, it's like hey there's some people from Canada here you know, and uh, so we got to chatting and learned about what they were doing and and I suppose the rest is history. Um, it, it, you know it's funny I, I was I was I, I said the story to when I was talking to Dr. Antoon when about the fast mimicking diet, but I was actually giving diabetic talks as a resident, I guess, over 10 years ago. And we had one doc who would come in and, and say to people like, you, you can reverse diabetes with diet. And everybody would make fun of him and it's back. Like, what, yeah. what is he talking about? This is irresponsible to tell this to people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, 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 and that's really what got to me because um, I mean, I've seen myself, I'm, I'm a genotype, diabetic genotype, right? I have high risk because of my parents. Mm -hmm. But by, by changing my diet, I was able to prevent it. Yeah. I, I've done it myself. It works. In fact, if you look at the medication, no medication can reverse it, except maybe because it causes weight loss. No diabetic mm -hmm. medication can reverse diabetes. Mm -hmm. So I'm a, I'm a believer too. <laughs> but yeah. I guess my question to you, uh, Stephen, is um, how do you, because... So lifestyle medicine is built around a couple of pillars, right? Now, again, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but there's six pillars, right? It's it's six general ideas. What are those pillars? So if we we can we start with nutrition, like we've been right. talking about. So, so a mindful approach to nutrition. And what you know, that's a very, very general term, but essentially what we're we're talking about is a predominantly plant-based whole food diet. Um, you know. The Mediterranean diet fits that, right? Um, and has you know there's there's plenty of, of good data specific to the Mediterranean diet. So, um, predominantly plant based whole food diet, um, evidence based exercise prescription, and what that might mean is for a normal healthy adult, uh, you know, just following the guidelines, uh, including aerobic strength training, balance training, and flexibility training. Um, and, you know, if we've got a patient, let's say, for example, has, uh, a you know, a number of comorbidities, uh, specific comorbidities like uh, inflammatory arthritis or morbid obesity or, or uh, uh, you know, apprehension to exercise, chronic pains and other classic, uh, then we would use more of an, uh, a prescriptive approach. And we have a colleague, I have a colleague in, in, um, uh, with Aroga in Victoria, Dr. Josh Levin, who has extra training in exercise physiology and therapy and, and trained as a coach as well. Um, and, and so we will ask Josh to do a consult uh, if we feel that that's necessary. 
the third pillar, so restorative sleep. So mindfulness and attention to uh, getting an adequate amount of good quality sleep. Stress management. So mindfulness, again, so mindfulness and meditation uh, can be part of that. Box breathing, but just an attention to stress management. Avoidance of substances. So uh, risky substances, so management of, of addiction, alcohol and tobacco being the, the, the primary ones, as you might imagine. And then positive social connections, so encouraging uh, patients to see the value of social interaction, uh, psychological support through social connection. So those are the six pillars. Yeah, and, and I'm really interested about the I mean, it's great, but the, the last one, the social connection part of it. So can you can you give more details? Like how do you encourage that in patients, especially if they're becoming isolated? I mean, COVID, COVID caused so much isolation, right? It, it was it was a disaster for that. But how would you encourage a patient to, to reach out? Or do you have yeah. group? So, I mean, from our perspective, you know, how we can do that within the AROGA model is through encouraging patients to participate in group visits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have a number of um, uh, physician-led groups that, um, and this I think will explain how we could do that sort of beyond the groups and out in the environment, um, you know, encouraging patients to, to connect socially in some, some way, shape or form. But uh, we've got a mindfulness meditation group. We've got a, an eight-part series that's that uh, ACLM or American College of Lifestyle Medicine helped us curate. Um, that is also physician-led. Uh, that teaches people about each of the pillars. And so, so through those interactions, you're you're using small groups. You're building potential connections there. You know, sometimes right. Right. within the group, and and also, you know, patients then I think get the sense that hey, you know what, I'm not alone. There's other people just like me struggling with the same things. And, and we hope that that kind of imparts that mindset or belief that, hey, there's other people out there like me. I'm not alone. Uh, and that in and of itself may encourage patients to reach out a little bit more socially, um, be, you know, beyond group visits. Um, yeah, so it, it might involve, um, you know, uh, community, you, you know, using, um, you know, joining a club. Right, finding uh, uh, a hobby or, or an exercise group. So often, senior folks will will say, "Look, join the Fit Fellows." There's a group uh, out here called Fit Fellows. It may be nationwide, actually, um, or the local community center. Things that are economical, easy to access, um, and just just I think reminding patients that hey, even if you're you tend to be uh, a little bit um, I would maybe you could use the term a loner, but but also introverted, right? Comfortable on your own, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, urging them to see the value of social connection, um, it, you know, with respect to their overall health. So so yeah. yeah, I remember when I was again a resident, we used to have um, for chronic pain, we used to have groups, group therapy for chronic pain patients, and I was always impressed at like how little. I needed to add, I mean, they, they were helping each other. It was, it was, they all felt better because they all felt like they were going through the same thing. They all had different tips about things. They all had different opinions. And, and, and I felt like for things like chronic pain, it's, it's very helpful to meet other people who are dealing with, with what you're dealing with. 
Um, and I'm interested, is, is do you have like, do you have those type of groups as well? Do you have chronic pain groups? Do you have obesity groups? How, how does it work exactly? Great, great question. Yeah. And, um, so currently we have uh, the mindfulness meditation group. These are the active groups. I'm just right. kind of reading them up. We have the, the core lifestyle series, which I discussed. We have a therapeutic yoga group. So, you know, we encourage chronic pain patients to, to connect there. Right. right. Do have a physiatrist that is doing, uh, you know, management of chronic pain group as well. That one is, is, I think, I think she's, she may be, maybe often a bit of a break for now, but, but we do have a group with, uh, with that emphasis that is physiatrist led. Okay. So, so, so that's happening already. That's really good. Yeah. We hope to expand that. You know, another one we'd I'd love to do would be um, a group on managing, managing a cancer diagnosis beyond your, your oncology visits with lifestyle. So, you know, utilizing, you know, nutritional recommendations and all the, you know, all of the pillars of lifestyle medicine in, you know, treating, treating cancer. And I, I, you know, I have yet to really dig into the evidence. I know that there's, there's a lot of, of um, interest in that area. Um, and, and, you know, for example, using um, a fasting mimicking diet or a fasting type diet to, to help to treat, treat cancer. Mm -hmm. um, when traditionally the oncologist would say, just look, you know, they're, they're worried about cachexia and, and people wasting away uh, and just say, just eat whatever you want, right? Eat, eat what you want, um, eat when you're hungry, uh, you need your nutrition to keep your weight up. So I think there seems to me to be more, more openness towards the potential power of nutrition in actually treating the condition along with uh, state-of-the-art um, uh, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, et cetera. You mentioned you mentioned you know evidence based studies and what are some studies that that you that you like to highlight supporting lifestyle medicine? So you know it's interesting because when you're talking about lifestyle medicine and and the interventions that that um, that encompasses, you're talking about a number of different interventions all at once, really, right? Um, so it's, it's more, I think, more difficult to sort of tease out, um, you know, specifics, but I, I think that's part of the, you know, the essence of lifestyle medicine is saying, look, we're not, we're not talking about just a diet trial here, or we're not talking about just an exercise trial here. We're talking about a package or, um, you know, a, um, a comprehensive approach using different, different different uh, interventions together to, to look at outcomes. So I, I did a little dating. I, there's, there's a couple that I pulled out that I thought I could, I could highlight. And I know, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Dean Ornish? You must I, be. Yeah. 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 So, so Dean Ornish is, yeah. is famous uh, physician and researcher from the States who um is a pioneer of lifestyle medicine and has written several books. And, and this study is an old one. It's 20 years old, but, but it is kind of one of the poster poster studies, if you will, for, uh, you know, the potential power of a lifestyle medicine intervention. So this was the, the lifestyle heart trial from 90, 1998. And they were using 
and geography to measure the potential effects of lifestyle change, intensive lifestyle change on, on um, coronary artery disease. So the patients were, I think there was 48 patients. So not a big group, but at the same time, you're angiogramming these folks, right? <laughs> yeah. One year and five years. So you're not going to get, you know, 1500 patients uh, for a study like this. But I think what he had done was they divided the group in, you know, they split the group, 20 received usual care. And, and that was, I think, an American Heart Association stage two uh, diet, which was 30% of calories from fat and, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that, versus a very low fat diet. So less than 10% calories from fat, vegetarian diet. And that's in the experimental group. Um, and in addition to the diet, aerobic exercise, smoking cessation, stress management, and group psychosocial support were, were part of the mix, part of the treatment group. And they angiogrammed them at baseline one year and five years. Um, and there was no statin in the treatment group. So it's important to, to, to know that the control group, some patients were on statins and some weren't. And so they looked at angiography and at five years, there was a mean decrease in stenosis of 8%. So that's, you know, when you think about it, that's a lot, right? That's wow. when you're talking about a, um, you know, a, a, you know, the physics and the physiology of a lumen and reducing plaque by 8% was pretty substantial. Um, and so the control group, if you're looking at that, so it was decrease of 8% in the, in the treatment group, the control group had an increase in stenosis of 28%. And the group on, that, that was not on a statin, so if you took that group separately, there was a 46% increase in, in plaque uh, by angiogram. So then out comes the other, the other thing was, was okay, so they looked at you know, MACE or major adverse cardiac events. Uh, there was 45 in the control group versus 25 in the in the treatment group. So, you know, pretty pretty substantial results. Um, so there was that. That was another one. And and then I, I did take one diet study. Uh, looked at one diet study that I thought was uh, was an interesting one and a landmark one was the Lyon uh, Lyon diet heart study. Um, which was uh, late 80s to early 90s. And this, this again, was a landmark trial. So I, I thought, yeah, it's an older one, but it's one that, that set the precedent for, uh, you know, the emphasis on the Mediterranean diet as a, a, having sound evidence behind it. And so there were 605 participants in this study, uh, all adults, of course, and, and all who had had a recent MI. Um, so again, they split the groups uh, into one with a typical Western diet, which was low in fiber, low in fish, fruits, vegetables, and uh, high in saturated fat, and versus a Mediterranean diet. So rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes, fish, olive oil, and low in red meat, low in saturated fat. So four years of follow-up, 70% reduction in risk of MI and stroke, much lower mortality rate, and lower total cholesterol and LDL lower blood pressure. So, wow. 70%. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that says a lot. And, and I think intuitively uh, it makes sense, right? A lot of us kind of know that, that, 
that, you know, I've not seen a trial that um, I, I didn't want to get into sort of uh, the diet wars here. There's so much stuff on. <laughs> on I, I, I just want, I, I'm going to give a plug to Dr. Gil Carvalho, if I could. Right. Of course. No, I haven't. Uh, please, please inform me. You know, there's all sorts of stuff out there. You've got Michael Greger with the who is who is a champion of the plant-based whole food diet, and and uh, I think himself eats a you know a vegan diet. Um, and then you've got you've got the carnivores out there. You've got yeah. the keto. Everybody's sort of plugging their own their own approach without sort of being open to, geez, I wonder if there might be something to eating uh, a lot of whole fruits, vegetables, you know, I wonder if there might be something to that, even if I do like meat uh, in my diet. Um, but it's everybody's encamped in these camps and it's, it's really tough for patients to, they, they're overwhelmed, right? They have no idea uh, who to, who to trust. And it's interesting. I have a, a patient with longstanding type two diabetes has coronary artery disease on angiogram. His lipids are high, but I can't get this guy to take a stat to add that to his treatment. Uh, and his cardiologist, I think she thinks it's my fault, but um, <laughs> it's, it's like, no, we've had this discussion a number of times. And, but, you know, he sees things online that tell him that that's, yes. he should avoid. Yeah. Um, so anyway, long story short, I stumbled on Gil Carvalho, who's an American uh, physician, uh, and he does a, a YouTube channel called Nutrition Made Simple. And honestly, you know, I've dug into this stuff a lot, and he has done just a great job of being objective and, uh, you know, looking at the data uh, you know, trial after trial, after trial, after trial, and also helping patients to sort through the trials that are misleading, right? The trials that say, you know, you don't need to worry about LDL. There's no evidence that saturated fat contributes to coronary artery disease, et cetera. Uh, so those trials are out there, of course, and, and they end up on Facebook or Instagram. And, and then you've got these, you know, quote unquote, controversies evolving, even though every guideline in the cardiovascular world, you know, lipidologists everywhere, you know, cardiovascular research is everywhere. The vast majority of them support the basic premise of, of you know, LDL and coronary artery disease. So anyway, Gil Carvalho, he's, he's great. Have a look at him. And uh, I think you'll find him really refreshing. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that right after we're done. But yes, there there is some kind of website that's very anti-statin out there because I've had a couple of patients who are convinced it's the worst thing for you. So yeah, and yeah. you know, one of the one of the funny things I I, I would just just to add this about the statins is of right. course the link between statins and, and diabetes risk. And and there's there's some some real support for that. The the issue is you have to look at okay, well, if that let's say that that's the case, that there may be some some increased association or, or connection between statin therapy and and diabetes risk. Well, why would I take a statin doctor if I know diabetes causes heart disease and, and it's the statin's going to make me diabetic? But if you look at the if you really look at the data, you know, there's overwhelming evidence for statins in, in, in diabetes. And and certainly if you were a, a, a person or a patient who had a was at risk for diabetes, you would want to watch your, your blood glucose levels when you go on a statin, if it's appropriate for you to, to use a statin. 
um, rather than just throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, so there are, there are, yeah, there's lots of websites. There are some websites certainly that are anti-stat. Yes. So I have a, I have a question for you because you've made a transition, right? You've, 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 you've transitioned from a, I guess a traditional family practice to one that's more lifestyle based. Actually, you're making a transition right now, if I if I understand correctly. In terms of in terms of the effect on lipids and the effect on sh- on blood sugar. So can can what's more like I guess is lifestyle medicine more effective for diabetes or for statin or for or for cholesterol issues? Because my, my impression is it's really hard to change your cholesterol unless you make a drastic change, but it's much easier to, yeah, to change your sugar. You're very active in that. And 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 we aroga actually, there's a we've got a little uh in our we'll see that in our internists um comments that that it is more difficult to um dramatically lower lipids unless I would see it in certain circumstances. So if the diet is quite high in saturated fat and sugar and you know the patient has all of those metabolic syndrome issues and they make a significant dietary change you can see quite significant reductions in lipids but i would i would add the caveat that you know it's more difficult it's it's easier let's say to to reverse diabetes than it is to get an ldl down from let's say four to 1.8 on diet alone. Um, so we do we do see uh, significant changes and, and changes that I think are, are in all likelihood going to benefit the patient outcome wise over time. Um, and there's, there you go. There, you, we just reviewed the Lyon uh, heart study and, and that's what they did, right? Yeah, yeah that's true. Outcomes changed over four years. So- <laughs> Maybe that's the approach because I have patients who get very, uh, like they, they feel really bad because they've done this, all this effort and the LDL went from four to three. And which is, they're looking at the numbers. They're not looking at everything else. And it, it's really hard for them to um, to realize that everything else is going right. But maybe I can use the Leon study as an example to keep them going. Yeah, and I think, I think have the patients focus not so much on... I know, you know, it's difficult because we emphasize numbers when the the folks have, so especially when they have uh, for secondary prevention, right? So we say for secondary prevention, we want to get the LDL down here, uh, real low, below 1.8, maybe even 1.5. But yeah, so, so that I know, I know, Patients struggle with that, but I think generally speaking, when you're looking at overall improvements in metabolic health and reduction in overall risk, just get the LDL down lower, um, and we see we see the benefits of that, right? Um, and if you can get it lower, and if you're if you're a patient who would be uh, where a statin would be indicated, um, then adding that can always be helpful as well, and and. Um, we don't certainly don't want to dissuade people from using medications with lifestyle medicine where it's meant to be complimentary. Right. Uh, we're meant to, but we really want to optimize the lifestyle components because the, the likelihood is, is that over, over time, the overall quality of life, uh, the, you know, the, the existence of, of morbidities, 
um, and and overall mortality is likely to to respond to that um, in a very positive way. And perhaps we're going to end up in decreasing the risk of certain cancers as well, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, you know, decrease the like likelihood of mobility issues and uh, debilitating arthritis, on and on and on. So, um, so yes, numbers are important. Um, medications are important, uh, but really, we can we can do a lot with lifestyle, and I think that's where certainly the healthcare system needs to go. And I think I think most of us would agree with that. Yeah, it certainly has, has to go that way, especially given that. Uh... That we have so many issues with with access. So speaking of that, I, my my question too is: I guess anybody can get a certification in lifestyle medicine, like any any specialty, internal medicine, family. Yes. Yeah, uh, it's that that's an interesting. It's, it's a it's a great question. So, um, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is you know where uh, the vast majority of our docs now are certified with the ACLM. And what did that involve? Um, it involved basically, of course, I was practicing full time while I was preparing for this. And and what it involves yeah. is um, you have to do a certain amount of of CME, right? And so that involves essentially these, you know, either the ACLM conferences, which are terrific. They're terrific, and and some some amazing speakers. So Dean Ornish has spoken there. Michael Greger speaks regularly. Um, some really, you know. Uh, well-respected um, people in the field of lifestyle medicine from the fields of nephrology, psychiatry, um, psychology, internal medicine, cardiology, um, you know, and, and we, in, in the U S it's interesting. We've seen a number of subspecialties get certified in lifestyle medicine. So um, it's growing like crazy. I think the, I think we had over 3000, uh, attendees at the last conference, and it's like doubled or tripled since I wrote my exam in 2018. So, so that's part of it. You you do the CME, and there is an exam, right? It's a four-hour uh, multiple-choice exam, and there's a study guide that you you would use to prepare for that. And then I think there was a case study or two that they wanted you to submit from your own practice, um, but that was essentially it, right? So. Um, it wasn't terribly arduous, although I think I probably put in a couple of years worth of um, worth of sort of preparation. I remember doing. Uh, are you familiar with uh, the China study? T I think T so. Yeah, T. Colin Campbell's wrote a book called The China Study, which was um, an important book in the field of lifestyle medicine, and um, where he looked at um, they did research on collected data on, I think, 600,000 Chinese peasants and looking, mapping, mapping disease um, uh, frequency based on, you know, where the, where the patients lived and dietary parameters and things like that. It was pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating study. So um, that's, that's worth looking into. But anyway, T. Colin Campbell was the author of that. And he's, I think in his late eighties now, but, um, uh, he did uh, through Cornell University. He does some some training in plant based nutrition, um, and so I did a course. Did that course that took took a few months to complete, and that was done online. Uh, but it's very doable. It's achievable, and and wow, we'd encourage uh, more family docs to do it. 
Um, but my internist colleagues have done it. Um, we have a respirologist who's a, a subspecialist in sleep medicine who has done the training with ACLM. We've got uh, an endocrinologist, very well-respected local endocrinologist who's joined us. We have a psychiatrist joining us from, um, I believe she's from Ottawa, actually. She's coming out to join us yeah. in the year. And uh, yeah, so so it's it's legit. And, you know, I think go to a conference. Like if you go to an ACLM conference, you will quickly become aware. And, and in, in, you know, we see dietitians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, a number of different sort of um, allied healthcare professionals in addition to physicians uh, attending these conferences. And just the, the energy at the conferences are just, is just amazing. And, uh, you know, the quality of physicians, I, I, there is a Canadian chapter of uh, Canadian Lifestyle Medicine chapter. And I think what's happened is there was some talk about separating and doing our own separate um, separate group and separate certification. But it just, I, I, I don't think it makes sense. ACLM is, 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 it's a terrific organization and it's built a significant amount of credibility and I think the power of that is just why we don't need to, we don't need to do that. There is a Canadian, there's within ACLM, they encourage um, uh, interest groups, right? And, and so there is a Canadian physician ACLM interest group. And again, just, I, I remember this, we had a sort of a sub meeting at the ACLM conference last year in Orlando. And, and uh, I just, I was just so impressed by the quality of the people in the room. Um, Cause these are all folks that are, this is not, not a huge money-making venture, right? These are all people that are passionate about, about changing the healthcare system for the better and about, you know, empowering patients to take better care of themselves, understanding that it's not easy to do that. It's difficult to do, right? The world is, they're inundated with stressors, um, pressures, struggling with addiction, whether that be to sugar, um, which is a real thing. Um, yes, it is. It's, it's crazy. It's yeah. it's like alcohol. Yeah. You know, it's nuts. Um, so, you know, understanding that, that it's a struggle in, in the environment that we live in, in the modern world to, to really keep on top of a, just a healthy lifestyle uh, we get that. And so, um, yeah, wanting to just help patients every step of the way. Um, and, and yeah, so high quality folks, um, passionate and, um, the ACL, ACLM conferences are, are terrific. They're, they're great places to meet people and, uh, and learn a few things. And that's in down California usually, or where, where do you, so where this do they year, change it? They change it up this year. It's in Colorado and Denver. Okay. Florida is a, a hard place to get to from Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to fly to Toronto and then yeah. you know, change planes and then fly. It, it's a long way. So um, yeah, they do they do California. Um, this one's in in Colorado. So who knows? Maybe we'll get one up in Vancouver one of these days. It's, it's I always I always want to have an excuse to come to Vancouver. It's it's always been the promised land. Yeah, you um, gotta visit us for sure. We we love to. I have so many questions, but I think we're going to have to have you back at some point because I, I really want to dig into the practicalities of doing this as a family doctor. But I guess 
my last question for today, I know our time is limited, is do you feel like there's a paradigm shift here you, you, in terms of just trying to, because I think medicine is a bit of an impasse right now, both in the US and Canada. And we need to come with new ideas. And obviously there's ideas coming from everywhere. There's AI, there's virtual health, there's everything like that. But do you feel like lifestyle medicine is, is one of those things that is really catching steam? I do. Okay. I do. I would use the the ACLN conferences as an example of that. Um, and when you are, are talking about our brothers and sisters to the South um, and the significant challenges that they also have with uh, with uh, lifestyle related disease and uh, healthcare costs and uh, inequalities and all sorts of stuff, uh, you see how things have grown there and the enthusiasm for um, you know, lifestyle medicine-based programs in some in some of the health systems down there. Uh, Midland, Texas has uh, has a really well well respected program. Cities like Chicago, New York are, you know, getting into the inner city where there's all sorts of fodder for this type of thing, and and starting to build these programs. So I do think there's a paradigm shift. I I almost think Canada is a little bit behind the U.S. in some <laughs> way. You really do. And we, we often are. <laughs> often. Opposite. Yeah. And I tell you, you know, um, uh, that country, they, they know how to get things done and they, they're not afraid to, to, to step forward. And we, we know that about America. So, um, yeah, I do think so. Uh, I do think there's a shift. I think it's because there's what else, what, whether, what other choice do we have? Right. Uh, what's happening now is, is just not sustainable. And, and I think we we've kind of hit the barrier. COVID really um, sh showed us the chinks in the armor of the healthcare system. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, God, I certainly hope that uh, that we're going to go that way. Um, and I do think team-based care, we're seeing that, Dimitri, across the country, they mm -hmm. sort of developing the idea of team-based care. And, and I would just quickly, before we leave, I would just say that, 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 the team is is the thing that I think is going to liberate uh, primary care physicians uh, just to give them some breathing room to to stay passionate about what they do um, with the team surrounding you, you know, dietitian, counselor, psychologist, uh, subspecialty supporting you. I, I, I think it's one of the big thrills of, of where I am now is saying, geez, I've got a couple of competent internists right next door to me that I can bounce questions off. I can refer to sleep medicine within my own, uh, within my own team. I've got a dietitian that um, I'm utilizing liberally with patients because they do have coverage. A lot of them. Um, it's just not something that, you know, in the, in, with the traditional approach uh, that we're kind of stuck with um, within our healthcare system. It's just, it's less, it's utilized less when it's outside the team environment. Just the team lends itself to, oh, hey, listen, I've got a counselor that could see you next week. What do you think? Um, you should just bounce that off our dietitian, Archie. Archie can, can do all sorts of things to, to help you negotiate the, the changes. And, and, and when it's within the team, um, it's, it's, it takes pressure off the physician and it and it it adds enthusiasm to what you're doing. It it allows you to say, hey, wow, I can really help here. These folks are right next to me. 
And it also makes it easier, I find, for the patient to uh, to say, okay, yeah, what? I can book that right now, walk out to the front, and my insurance will cover it? Oh, that's great. Or, oh, you've got this, uh, this um, group program that's free? Awesome. Let's do that. So the team is is liberating that that concept. I think. It, it just it just I feel so liberated just listening to this, <laughs> just being able to to bounce ideas off people. Just just uh, just having access. It's about access, right? It's about access, and and that's great. But but listen, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time, and I love to have you back. I have so many more questions about how you've you've incorporated this in your practice. Maybe oh, I can have you back at some point, but uh, really appreciate your time. All right. All right. All the best. And uh, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Take care. All right.